Um, you know, every time Jamie and I come home to visit, I look forward to being here on Sunday mornings with you, uh, Wednesday evenings. But when Brother Cody asked me about a month ago or so to, to come and preach for you guys, I was just ecstatic. So I've been greatly looking forward to, to this day. I've been praying for you now for about a month um, that you guys won't get up and walk out in the middle of my sermon. But I'm excited. Uh, I know many of you have known that I was going to be here this morning, so you've been praying for me, and I thank you for that. Um, continue to pray for me as, as we study the Word of God together this morning. So with that said, why don't you go ahead and take your Bible and open it up to the book of Hebrews. This morning we're going to be studying one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, and really it's a passage that I know that many of you know. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at three different verses this morning. Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Now, I know, in fact, I'm more confident than anything that you know these verses. In fact, I'm positive that many of you have heard a pastor preach these verses before. Many of you, I know, have committed these verses to your memory. You've stored up God's word in your heart. This morning, my prayer and my goal is for us to be able to hear from the Lord and to be able to apply this to each one of our hearts this morning. So, with your hearts prepared, please stand with me as we read the infallible, perfect word of the Lord. Now, I'm going to be reading from the King, uh, New King James Version this morning, and I think that's actually what we're going to have up on the screen is the NKJV. Um, Also, we don't know the author of this book. Many speculate it could be uh, various different men, but we don't know for sure. Nevertheless, we do know that it is God-inspired, God-breathed. So the Lord, through this author, says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful... And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. And you notice there, the D and day is capitalized. So we're referring to something specific. We're referring to the return of Jesus but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you and we thank you, Father, for this time that we can gather in your name and worship your name. I pray, Father, that you help us to understand the passage. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to see Christ through this book. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as Brother Cody said, I grew up here at Gray Gables. Many of you watched me grow up, and God bless you for that. My family came here when I was around eight years old or so. Um, That was some 25, 26-something years ago. During my time, I was heavily influenced by many of you. You took care of me. You took care of my my family. Uh, We saw that in physical ways. We saw that when my granddaddy died about 25 years ago, or 20, uh, 13 years ago, uh, I, I vividly remember how well you took care of my family and I. 
You, you physically tended to our needs. You made us meals. You, uh, you, you, you did anything that you possibly could in order to help us to, to make it through this, really this earthquake that my family was going through. Uh, you prayed for us. You cooked meals for us. You helped take our minds off of the situation and you helped us to put our minds upon the Lord. Not only did you physically take care of me and my family, but you took care of me spiritually, right? So growing up inside of this church, I went through many, if not most, of the various different ministries that Greg Abels has here. I sat under the teaching of many of you. Many of you are still here. Many of you can vividly remember me as a boy uh, and you teaching me. Many of you uh, are still here, many have left, and many have gone to be with the Lord. You taught me in children's ministry, you taught me in the youth group, Brad and Tammy, God bless them, taught me in the college and career class, and my time ended here at First Baptist Gray Gables in the young marrieds class and that's really where I want to focus our attention this morning is in this particular Sunday school class. My young married Sunday school class was uh, led by none other than Cody's dad, uh, Tim Page. Now I loved him and Tim loved me. Tim worked hard at knowing me. He knew me inside and he knew me outside. He took me under his wing and he taught me the scriptures. He discipled me. He helped me to understand doctrine. He helped me understand theology. He cared for me like a shepherd cares for his sheep. And not only did he take time to help me to understand the scriptures, but he helped the class, the various different members of this class, to know the gospel and to know it well. And I know for the many teachers that are sitting in here this morning that just got finished teaching Sunday school, you, sh you share the same desire of wanting your people inside of your class to know the Bible and to know it well. Well, at one point in that time, during that time in, in, in the class, I found myself where I'd fallen into some habitual sin. And because Tim knew me so well, he saw straight through the lies that I told him. Well, because he saw straight through the lies, he, he called me out on my sin. And as you can imagine, that, that conversation wasn't a feel-good conversation. It was, it was a rather terrifying conversation, right? You guys know how big Tim is. But Tim helped me to grow as a man. He helped me to grow as a husband. He helped me to grow as a father. And not only was Tim a part of that, but the other brothers that were part of this class, they were a part of it too, uh, like Brother Richard Roden. He helped me, as well as these other brothers, they helped me to fight and to resist sin. They truly helped me to understand what the church is supposed to look like. They were accountable to me. These brothers were constantly coming back to me saying, Brian, how's it going? Are you doing well? What's going on? They were staying in check with me. The Sunday school class helped me to realize that they truly cared for me and they truly cared that I was to be more and more like Jesus every single day of my life. The Sunday school class or this, this small group of believers wasn't only just a blessing to me, 
But it was a blessing to my wife, too. Jamie and I, we brought three little boys home, and we had a wonderful Sunday school class who constantly was taking care of us. It was within this small group of believers, this Sunday school class, that my calling into the ministry was brought up. And it was affirmed by this class, helping me to see and to realize that God had set me apart to be a pastor. I could really go on and on as to my various different experiences that I had inside of a Sunday school class. And I'm confident that each one of you can, can come up with various different examples as well as to how your Sunday school class or how your small group of believers has helped you and blessed you. So this morning, in light of that, I want us to consider our roles to one another. I want us to see the importance of being in a smaller, tighter-knit community with one another. I want us to see the importance and really the command of Scripture as to how we are to be in small groups together and in the context of Greg Abel's, the importance of being in a Sunday school class together. Now, I'm no fool. When somebody comes up into the pulpit and they preach certain topics like this, folks turn off. They, they turn their listening ears right off. Oh, he's going he's to talk about Sunday school? I'm not going to Sunday school, so this sermon's not for me. And you got the folks on the other end of the spectrum. I'm in Sunday school every single week. This sermon's not for me. Beloved, I want you to understand this sermon is for all of us. It's for all of us who go to Sunday school every single week. It is for us who say we go to Sunday school regularly, but yet we're only there maybe five or six times a week or a month. Or, uh, and, and it's also for us who don't go to Sunday school at all. My goal for us this morning is to see the Lord's desire for us and how we desperately need one another. And God willing, we will see that here this morning. Now here in these three verses that we just got finished reading, I believe that we find two exhortations that will help enable us to live better in the context of the church as well as in small groups together and as well as within our Sunday school classes. First, we will see that we are to be growing with one another. We are to be growing with one another. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now let us hold to, uh, to this confession. Let us hold fast to this confession. What in the world is the author here talking about? Well, many churches, including this church, First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's, and my church down south, First Baptist Church of Weston, we hold to a lengthy and very wordy document um, that helps us to clarify and to understand certain things that we believe concerning what the Bible teaches. The author here is not referring to this type of confession. In fact, what the author here is referring to is something that he has clearly tried to communicate through the entire book, but specifically here in this chapter of chapter number 10. Now, I want us to be able to go back and look exactly what he's calling the confession. But before we do that, we need to consider and understand what he has already spoken about and what he is pointing us to. He is drawing the reader's minds back to the tabernacle, and inside of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, and inside of the Holy of Holies was the 
Ark of the Covenant. He's bringing our minds back to this. Now, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest, he would purify himself, and then he would finally make his way over into the Holy of Holies. He would bring the, the blood of the sacrificed animal, and then he would begin to, to, to sprinkle it onto this Ark of, of the Covenant. So inside of the Ark of the Covenant was, was the broken law that man had broken. And above it was the holy God of the universe. And in between them was the mercy seat. So when this high priest would come in and he'd sprinkle this blood on it, it was to signify that there was a sacrifice that was made and that sins were forgiven. So when the high priest would walk right back out of the, uh, the, the tabernacle, the people would begin to rejoice. They would begin to praise God. Now, why were they doing that? They were praising God because they realized that the sacrifice had been accepted. Their sins had been forgiven. So then they would turn around, and as soon as they took that first step, they walked right back into sin. And here the author is helping us to understand something so important. He's helping us to understand the beauty of Jesus. In verse number four, it says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse number 10 says that it was the offering of Jesus that was once for all. And this is where I want to pick up. I want to pick up in verse number 11. Chapter 10, verse number 11 it says, in every high priest, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds and will write them. Verse number 17. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. This is what the author is helping us to understand. This is what he is casting our minds too. He says, this is the confession of your hope. Their hope is in the fact that Jesus lived for them, that Jesus died for them, that Jesus rose again for them, and ultimately that Jesus has saved them. And this is what he is telling them to hold on to without wavering. He says, you must persevere in it. You must continue in it. You must never abandon it, and you must never let it go. And the author actually describes this hope as an anchor. Brother Cody read it for us just a, a minute ago. Uh, chapter 6, verse 19 says, this hope, that the, the author has already painted the picture of this hope that we have as an anchor for the soul. It is both sure and steadfast. Our hope is so real. Our hope is so tangible. Our hope is so sure. It is so strong that the author calls it an anchor. Listen to what one author says about this hope being an anchor, and I quote, 
No ancient or modern sailor who knows what can happen during an ocean voyage would go to sea in a ship that carried no anchor. Even today, and even if the ship were the greatest and most modern vessel afloat, Every sailor knows that situations might arise when the hope of the ship and all her company will depend not on the captain, not on the crew, not on the engines, not on the compass, not on the rotor, but on the anchor. Listen very carefully. When all else fails, there's hope in the anchor. The author of Hebrews is telling us that our hope, it's an anchor. And looking back here at our text in verse 23, we find something incredibly encouraging. The author says, he who promised is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul says something incredibly similar. He says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. We can have hope, beloved, because we can be fully and forever forgiven because why God is faithful. There's an old story of a father. He's having to go into the city to be able to drop off a a couple of things and run a couple of errands. And his son wanted to be able to come with him. So the son, this was many, many years ago, before cell phones and before the, the world was as crazy as what it is now. He, he brings his son with him into the city and he finds this one corner that he thinks that his son is going to be able to, to kind of be occupied in. And he drops him off and he says, son, there's a, there's a toy store here. I want you to, to hang out right here. Don't leave. I will be right back. So the son says, okay, he gets out. He's starting to look inside of the windows of that toy store, knowing that his daddy told him that he would be right back. Well, the daddy gets in his car, he shovels off and going where he needs to go to run off a couple of these errands and then his car breaks down. He literally has no way of being able to get back in touch, touch with his son and he begins to, to freak out. My son's all by himself. What's going to happen? Somebody going to take him? Is my son scared? If, we've, if you've lost your child, which praise God, I've never lost my child. <laughs> I can only imagine the, the frightening feelings that you might have. So this, this dad finally gets things back together. And it took about an hour or so. And he finally ran all the way back to where his son was. And what did he see his son doing? Just hanging out. Just waiting on his daddy. And he runs over and he, and he hugs his son and he's kissing him and he's hugging him. He's saying, son, I'm so sorry that it took me so long to get back. I, I love you so did you Did you think that I was never going to come back? And the son said, no, daddy. I knew that you were going to come back. You told me that you were. Friends, we have to understand that our rest and our certainty is in our confession which is an anchor of our hope because that's what the scriptures teach us. And the scriptures teach us that he who promised is faithful. Now look closely here. It tells us something that we need to be doing. This is an imperative. This is a command. The author here is telling us to actively do something Now, in the context of church, practically, what does this look like? What he's wanting us to do, this command for us to fill out, what does it practically look like for us to be doing? Well, beloved, look around. 
It's worship. But growing with one another, which is what we're looking at, growing with one another, it, it takes a little bit more than just worship. Now, please don't under, misunderstand me here, because I believe that the centrality of the growth of, a, of the Christian is worship, specifically speaking, the preaching of God's word. I believe this is the centrality of when and how we grow as Christians, but it takes more than just that. It's not enough. Look at, look at the, the personal plural pronouns here of verse number 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Now, can we do these personal plural pronouns in the context of the church right now? Well, absolutely we can. We most certainly can. But the idea here that the author is trying to convey is that we are needing to be doing it in smaller groups of community, smaller groups together, in Sunday school classes in the context of Gray Gables, so that they can be able to grow effectively with one another. Growing together in the way that the author is describing requires close connections. It requires being in smaller groups with one another. We must become accountable to one another. We must submit to one another. And we must do this so that we can walk with Christ until we either take our last breath or the Lord returns. Because we need one another. So beloved, we are to grow with one another. But secondly, I believe that we see another exhortation we are exhorted to care for one another. We are to grow with one another, but we are also to care for one another. Verse 24 says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, why in the world would the author be encouraging his readers to consider one another? Well, to help us to understand, we need to know about the people that he's writing to. Now, these folks, these were Jewish Christians, and they were being persecuted for what they believed. So, they were thinking, okay, so if we, have, we, if we were walking into Christianity, and we weren't being persecuted when we, were, when we were Jews, but we're being persecuted now, so if we don't want to be persecuted anymore, well, maybe we just need to go on back over here and go back to the Levitical law and start going and sacrificing things all over again. Maybe then we'll stop being persecuted. Now with the author of Hebrews realizing this and knowing this, he begins to call out the Christians who are stronger and more grounded in their faith. And he says, you, you guys, you need to come over here to these weaker Christians. These ones whose faith is starting to crumble and you need to begin to care for them. You need to begin to lift them up. You need to begin to help them. And, and the author here, he's not spontaneously or telling us to, to spontaneously consider one another. He isn't telling them to slap them on the back and say, hey, man, I'm going to see you next Sunday morning. Amen. No, he's, he's telling them something more than that. He's telling them that they need to carefully consider one another. He says that you need to study 
one another. Think of how Tim knew me because Tim knew me so well when I lied to him, he saw straight through it. Now, why would he give such an imperative here? Why would the author be telling us that we need to know each other so well, that we need to consider one another, that we need to study one another? Because these Jewish Christians needed one another and they needed each other badly. They didn't need a slap on the back and said, I'll see you next Sunday. They needed someone to actually hold them up during the entire week. They didn't need somebody to rub shoulders with and have somebody pray with them on a Sunday. They needed somebody to pray for them the entire week and then be open to a phone call in the middle of the week at midnight. They didn't need somebody like that. They needed somebody who was going to be constantly encouraging them to be contemplating them. And brothers and sisters, that's what we are supposed to be doing. So what does it look like for a Christian to practically care for one another in this particular way? In the context of our church right now, what does that look like for us? Well, Christians who, are, Christians who care for one another are not merely concerned about each other's improvement and safety as individuals. They are rather to be desperately seeking to promote the best interest of one another. We need to attend to each other's wants. We need to attend to each other's infirmities. And we need to attend to each other's temptations. Not only that, but we administer assistance when needed. We give godly counsel when needed. And we give caution when needed. We help each other to fight and to resist sin. We help each other with the daily struggles of raising children. And then we help walk through the sorrowful struggles when somebody loses their spouse. That is what true care looks like. Knowing your brothers and sisters so well sitting in this sanctuary right now that they don't even need to say a word. You're able to minister to them in that way. So in light of that, husbands, I have a question for you. This is for you husbands. When you and your wife are sitting on the couch and you're watching TV and your wife says, oh, I'm so thirsty. What is, what is your wife asking you? She's not just merely saying that she's thirsty. She's saying, get off your sorry butt and go get me something to drink. Wives, I have a question for you. <laughs> when you're sitting on the couch with your husband and you tell your husband just how thirsty you are and he doesn't get up to go get you something to drink, wives, what does your husband say? Honey, while you're in there, could you please get me something to drink? Right? Not only that, and if that's not the excuse that we use, sometimes we say, well, honey, I didn't realize that you wanted something to drink. You didn't ask me. Now, that's totally opposite as to what we need to be doing here at the church. Here at the church, we are to know each other so well 
that not a word is even said. My wife and my children, they don't have to say things too often, too often, uh, emphasized. Because my eyes and my ears are upon them. My attentiveness is upon them. And that is exactly the way we are to be working here inside of the church. And uh, this leads us to the question of why. What is the purpose for us to consider one another? Well, the author here says that we need to stir each other up to love and to good works. The idea of stirring up one another has this idea of provoking one another or arousing one another. The word is used in the way that a farmer would be able to prod his cows in order to get the cows to be able to go do something. Now, we're not calling each other cows here this morning, but we must have the same idea that a farmer prods his cows to get them to do what he wants them to do. The author here says that we are to be prodding each other to good works, to love and good works, or we could say love that leads to good works. It also has this meaning of helping each other make it to the very end. Remember, these Jewish Christians were about to walk away from their faith, so the author essentially is saying, you stronger Christians, you, you go out and you minister to these, these Christians whose faith is eroding, that their faith is beginning to crumble. You go to them and you begin to minister to them. You love them. You put your attentiveness on them, your eyes and your ears on them, and you help them make it to the very end. The author goes on and he says in verse 25, with another imperative. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, guys, these, these Christians, these Jewish Christians, they needed one another. They desperately needed one another and the author says that they were forsaking going to church. Now what does this practically look like for us in 2019? Sometimes... Sometimes we forsake going to church on a Sunday because sometimes we say that we've got better things to do. Sometimes we forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we might say it's a family day. Sometimes we forsake the gathering of believers because we're on vacation and because we're on vacation, therefore we need to be on vacation from church. Sometimes we use the excuse that we've worked hard all week long and that we need to sleep in. Now, I'm not discounting you hardworking folks that work on Saturdays and sometimes late on Saturdays. But we have to remember first priorities. Sometimes we've used the examples that they have fallen out of the habit of going to church. Whatever the excuse was that these, that these Christians had in the Jewish church, they neglected assembling together. And when we neglect assembling together, we cut ourselves off from the very means whereby Christ feeds us, assures us, and protects us. Now, when we've considered the brothers and sisters of our church we know them and we are helping them walk into the manner as to what God has called them to. We'll see it played out in being regular in the context of the church. 
As Christians, there is nothing in this world that should offer us anything outside of these four walls here. There's nothing that this world offers us than what we can receive in here. And brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that. Your pastors need to be reminded of that. Let me ask the question, who's going to remind us of that? You are. Not only reminding us, but you're reminding each other. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. He says that you need to exhort one another. You need to strengthen one another. You need to encourage one another. Beloved, we need to be able to grab onto this idea that, that the Lord has saved us and he has sovereignly placed us inside of the church. We don't come here so we can feel good or we don't come here so we can just take a, a check mark off of our list. We don't come because we know it's the right thing to do. We come because we desire as the Lord's bride to corporately worship him and to take care of the brethren. Godly living is hard enough. Why in the world would we want to do it all on our own? And to be honest, the Bible knows nothing of a lone ranger Christian. So the so the bottom line here is that we need one another. We grow with one another and we care for one another. So let's go ahead and conclude this morning by looking at a couple of additional things and then we can all head over to the Mexican buffet uptown. <laughs> Amen. Look, if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith, uh, come to, to Christ by faith, I want to read a verse that we've already read this morning, but I want your eyes to be specifically here on this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. It says, then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Friends, when, when somebody does something wrong against us and when somebody sins against us, we have this uh, uncanny ability to remember it and actually to hold it against them. But the scriptures actually says the opposite concerning the Lord. The Lord says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is outstanding news. The fact that we have sinned against the holy God of the universe, that we have committed cosmic treason against God, and yet here God is still telling us that if you come to me by faith, I will remember your lawless deeds and sins no more. And we must turn from our paths of wickedness and turn to the righteousness of Christ. And the Bible says that he will forgive us. This righteousness that Jesus has is the only righteousness that satisfies the requirements of God. We can't muster up our own righteousness on our own. In fact, that type of righteousness, the, the Bible tells us, is filthy rags. We must turn to Christ. And the Bible says that upon our faith and our repentance, we will be forever forgiven through what Jesus did on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God. And he did it in our place. So friends, your sins can be washed away this morning and be remembered no more. 
here at the end of the service, uh, I want to make myself available if you have any questions. Uh, Brother Cody and Brother Justin will be here. Deacons will be around. Look, come talk to somebody. Don't leave this morning not knowing what would happen if you got into a car accident. And God knows that can happen. Today is the day of salvation. Now to us who do believe, I want to consider two things and then we will conclude and be done. I want us to go back to this idea that that our hope is an anchor, Hebrews 6, 19. I want us to understand this. When we are correctly hitched to this anchor, absolutely nothing will be able to shake us. If we are correctly hitched to this anchor, nothing will be able to shake us. Church, do you believe that this morning? Well, let's put it to the test. Let's look at a few different scenarios and see how well that plays out. Scenario A, scenario number one, you are currently living paycheck to paycheck. You're struggling to pay your bills and, well, you lose your job. What's going to happen? What's going to happen now that you can't, you can't take care of your loved ones? What's going to happen? Well, the Lord may allow you to lose a ton of your material possessions. He may allow you to lose all your material possessions. But I want to argue with you that if you are holding on to this anchor, then the anchor itself will never allow you to fall away. And praise God that when our grip loosens, the grip of God never loosens. Praise God for that. Scenario number two, you've been diagnosed with some type of terminal illness. You have cancer. Uh, the doctors have evaluated you, and he says, well, look, this is just as terrible news. You've got a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, if you're lucky, to live. This is, this is terrible news. This is awful news. What are you going to do? Well, even through this, the anchor will hold. The anchor is sure. The anchor is steadfast. Lastly, your spouse has left you, or you have a wayward child. You feel totally alone, you feel abandoned. What are you going to do? Hold fast to the anchor. You can't make others cling to the anchor, but you can. You can cling to the anchor. Hold fast to it. Listen, beloved, the anchor is all that we have. That's all that we have. And when we cling through it, we can make, through, make it through whatever storm that we are going through. When, when the winds pick up and the ship is bobbing up and down and we are, we are walking through all of life's troubles, understand this. We must hang onto this anchor. Why do we hang onto this anchor? Because like what I just said a minute ago, when all else fails, there is hope in the anchor. Lastly, let me ask a question that I'm sure that you've been anticipating me to ask when you found out that I was going to preach about Sunday school. I want you to seriously consider these questions. Seriously think about them. Question number one, are you part of a Sunday school class? If not, why not? Are you part of a Sunday school class? If not, 
why not? Question number two, if you are loosely connected to a Sunday school class, why are you choosing to hold this God-given gift at an arm length distance? Why? Lastly, if you are regular, if you are regular in a Sunday school class, what are you doing to connect with the brothers and sisters that are currently sitting in this sanctuary who do not go to class? What are you doing? Listen, our relationship with the Lord is a personal relationship, but understand, though it is a personal relationship, it is not a private relationship. We have to understand that God has saved us through the word of God, by the spirit of God, and he has placed us in the church of God. We must take this gift of the church and we must benefit from it. And really to tie a, a nice little bow on top of all of this, if you have lost your source of income or you've been diagnosed with cancer or your spouse has left you or you have a wayward child, who's going to take care of you? Who's going to take care of you? I would like to argue with you that if you are in a small group of believers, they will take care of you. So our job, brothers and sisters, our job is to carry each other to the very end. And beloved, let's do just that. Father, we love you and we thank you for your perfect word. I pray, Lord, that you help us to truly understand our roles to one another. Help us, Father, to minister to one another, to grow with one another, to care with one another. There are, there are so many one another's of the New Testament. Lord, help us to live that out and let us do that in the context of the church. Because Father, uh, we may not be persecuted like this Jewish uh, Christian church was, but Lord, that doesn't, that doesn't discount how badly we still need one another because we are still affected by the curse, by the fall. So Lord, we are still struggling, uh, walking through this life with uh, this, this, this dying shell. Uh, so I pray, Father, that you help us to love one another, to be attentive to one another, to care for one another. Help us to not just care for one another on a Sunday morning, but through Monday, Tuesday, all the way through the following Sunday morning. Lord, help us to be inconvenienced for one another. Lord, because what a beautiful picture of the gospel that truly is, being inconvenienced for one another. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to apply these words to our lives, Father, for, for our good, but most importantly, for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.